Bridge Oddcast. In space, no one can hear a stream. With John Field, Stuart Harper, Fiona Healy, Indy Leclerc, Kat Maguire and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, November 2013 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. Joining me today are Indy and Fiona. Hi guys. Hello. Hi. And Fiona enjoyed presenting so much last time that she's come back for more. (laughs) (laughs) In the show this time, Indy interviews Dr. Clive Tadhunter about AGN trigger mechanisms, Ian Morrison and John Field take a look at what the night sky has in store for us this month. And, as always, we fit in some odds and ends from the world of astronomy. But first, before all of that, here's Stuart with this month's news. This month in the news, how a supernova becomes a hypernova. At the dawn of the cosmos, the first stars ignited from the quiescent clouds of hydrogen that filled the universe. These first stars would be almost entirely made from hydrogen gas, and compared to the stars of today, were enormous, easily reaching hundreds of times the size of our own sun in terms of mass. What allowed these monster-sized stars to form was the lack of metallic elements in the very beginning of the universe. The difference between metal-rich and metal-poor star-forming clouds are that the metal-rich clouds are able to more rapidly cool the gas which they contain. This means that when new stars form from the gravitational collapse of the gas within a nebula, the point at which the nuclear fusion of the new star begins, which is also the point at which the new star stops growing, is earlier for the metal-rich nebulae than in metal-poor nebulae. This results in the present universe, where the largest star that can form is up to 100 times more massive than the Sun, but no larger. What happens then to stars that are more than 100 times more massive than the Sun? Finding out by direct observations of such stars is almost impossible, since it was about 6 billion years ago that the universe became too metal-rich for them to form. So, any which are potentially visible will be within extremely distant galaxies. However, we have observed the unique supernova explosions which occur upon their deaths, known as pair instability supernovae, which are over 100 times brighter than any other kind of supernovae, and are also sometimes known as hypernovae. Models of stars can tell us more about the processes that lead up to these hypernovae. First, the star begins as almost entirely hydrogen. Over time, this hydrogen is converted into helium via the fusion processes that light up the star. Once all the hydrogen is exhausted, the star has a moment where it no longer has enough energy pushing out from its core to hold up its enormous mass, so it begins to collapse towards the centre. The act of collapsing heats up the now helium-filled core of the star until the helium can begin to fuse and stop the collapse of the star. Eventually, though, the helium is also exhausted, and it is at this point that the star rapidly begins travelling along the path to going supernova. First, the core stops fusion again. The star's outer layers fall inwards to the centre, and again, the core heats up. However, this time, the momentum of the infalling outer layers is not stopped when the now oxygen-rich core begins to fuse. Because some of the light emitted during fusion is so energetic, it is spontaneously turning into matter, one electron and one positron, a matter and antimatter pair. This means that there is nothing pushing on the outer layers to stop them falling inwards. This causes a sudden burst of rapid oxygen fusion to occur, which is so violent it blows the entire star apart, leaving nothing behind. 
We have observed a number of these types of supernovae. The first back as early as the 90s at a range of different times after the Big Bang, starting about 8 billion years ago. Back in 2007, astronomers spotted a supernova explosion several days after it had reached its peak brightness, but they could still estimate that it was much brighter than any normal supernova. Quickly, it was proposed that it was a pair instability supernova, but there was a problem. It occurred only a billion years ago. Essentially the present-day universe, a time when it should be impossible for the sort of supermassive metal pole stars that cause these supernovae to form. Since then, at least two more supernovae have been seen. Perhaps one supermassive low metal star may have formed in the recent universe, but multiple examples definitely should not be possible. Either our understanding of how metals are enriching the star-forming regions in the universe is wrong, or our understanding of what is causing the hypernovae is wrong. Last month, a team of researchers published in Nature an alternative mechanism for hypernovae, which would allow them to occur without the star needing to be large enough for a pair instability to form in the star's core. They propose that the nearby hypernovae can be explained by the collapse of metal-rich stars in the normal core-collapse supernova event. How it works is that instead of a typical neutron star forming upon the depth of a metal-rich star, instead the neutron star is imbued with an extremely powerful magnetic field from its parent star. This sort of neutron star is called a magnetar. The magnetar's magnetic field then acts to energise the entire supernova, pushing its peak brightness up to the same levels as a pair instability supernova. When the researchers compared their models for a magnetar-based hypernova and the pair instability models with the data observed in 2007 and the other nearby hypernova they found that the magnetar model agreed better. The two key observational points being that the peak brightness of the observations both rose and fell much faster than a pair instability supernova could. Although this means that the hypernovae nearby were not stars like those that formed in the first round of star formation at the cosmic dawn of the universe, we at least still can be sure that our current understanding of stellar evolution is correct. Of course, there are still several hypernovae that occurred at greater distances earlier in the universe that we have observed, therefore we still have examples of those very first stars to study. Thanks for that, Stuart. Now we have Indy talking to Dr. Clive Tadhunter about AGN trigger mechanisms. Today we're with Dr. Clive Tadhunter from the University of Sheffield. Hello, Dr. Tadhunter. Hello. So you're interested in studying active galactic nuclei, or AGNs, um, and specifically what triggers them. Could you first of all explain to our listeners what an AGN is? Yeah, an AGN is a, is a galaxy which has an unusually bright nucleus. So the, the the brightness of the nucleus can be similar to all the stars, all the hundreds of billions of stars in the galaxy, or it can be up to a hundred times the light of all the hundreds of billions of stars in the galaxy. So quasars are the ones that are really bright, and that's the ones we're most interested in. Okay. Am I right in saying that most AGNs have a distinctive feature, which is... Um two jets that sort of uh, get ejected at very high speeds. Yeah, most of them have these jets that get ejected at very high speeds and they emit lots of radiation at all wavelengths. 
Right, so they're very bright uh, from... Yeah, everything. they're very bright. Yeah, all, the, you know, in x-rays, infrared, optical, radio, yeah. Okay, and so despite the fact that they are some of the brightest objects in the universe, we don't actually know that much about them, about why they're triggered, how they form. So that's what you sort of study. Yes. What are the main theories at the moment for how these things uh, get going, as it were? Yeah, the idea is that there's a supermassive black hole in the centre of the galaxy that has a quasar. And that has a mass between about a million and 10 billion times the mass of the sun. So very massive. But the thing about a black hole is that nothing can escape from it, not even light itself. That's why we say it's black. Of course. So you may wonder how black holes can generate all that energy and all that light that we can see. Well, the trick is that the, the gas gets accreted by the black hole. And as it's accreted by the black hole, before it falls into the black hole, it emits lots of light. So the gravitational energy that the gas has gets converted into heat and light. Right. And that process is extremely efficient. So it's about 10 times more efficient than the fusion that powers stars. And that's why these nuclei can be so bright. I see. So we've got this, this really heavy black hole at the centre and we've got all this gas that's falling into it. Those conditions wouldn't necessarily cause a huge amount of energy to be released. If you lead on to sort of why well, you can have galaxies which don't necessarily have very bright AGNs, and, but most of them will come from two galaxies having merged, and which produces a lot of extra energy. Yeah, the problem is how you get the gas down close to the black hole so, so it can release its energy as it falls in. And the problem is that if, the, if you take the Earth as being the size of the galaxy, mm -hmm. the black hole would be tiny. Yeah. It would be the size of a grape. Right. So you've got to funnel that gas down into a very small scale in the centre of the galaxy. Okay. Um, and the trouble is that most of the gas in a galaxy is, is rotating around the centre on stable orbits. So we believe, for example, that our Milky Way has a, a black hole in its centre of about 4 million solar masses. But it's not a quasar, it's not an active galaxy. And that's because the gas is just rotating around the centre. Okay. And just like the Earth goes around the Sun or the Moon goes around the Earth, it will carry on doing that forever and until something knocks it off its course. So in order to get stuff really close to the centre, you need to have some event to drive the gas in. Right. Um, and that's the trick. So, so that's how you trigger AGN, and that's what we're studying, how that happens. Okay. So could you run us through what, what the main theories are for yeah, how this... Yeah, so, so what, one idea is that you just have what we call bars in the centres of galaxies. Uh, and these are uh, gravitational disturbances. Okay. And they cause the gas to fall into the centre of the galaxy on radial orbits. Right. Uh, and, and go into the centre. So instead of rotating round in a normal way, it actually gets driven in. Yep. Um, another way is that we know that there are little dwarf satellite galaxies around the Milky Way. Uh, and if they fall into the centre, that could give you some gas in the centre, some accretion, yep. which could, could give you some activity. The trouble is we don't think those mechanisms will give you enough gas falling into the centre to get really bright quasars. Okay. Uh, because you need to drive a lot of gas in to get a bright object. Sure. And, and those sort of typical mechanisms wouldn't work. So we think there must be some really major event that drives the gas in. And the most popular theory is that that event is a major galaxy merger. 
Okay, so that's when two galaxies start getting a bit too close to each other and then they sort of in- start interacting with yeah. each other. Yeah, yeah. So what are the various stages in, of a galaxy merger and how do, you, how do you tell that two galaxies are in the process of merging or, or have merged even? Well, you start off with two uh, spiral galaxies like the Milky Way okay. and they're separate on the sky and they're not at all distorted. They're rotating happily. The gas in them is stable and stable orbits. But as they get closer together, the galaxies raise tides on each other. Yep. And when they get really close together, uh, those ties get very strong, and that causes the gas to flow into the centre of the galaxies close to the black holes that are there okay. and can trigger activity. This is not just a theoretical thing. We know it happens. We, we, we see mergers happening even nearby in the universe. And we think that's also what's going to happen to our own Milky Way galaxy because if we look at the nearest big spiral, uh, M31 in Andromeda, mm-hmm. it turns out it's coming towards us at 300 kilometers a second. Right, yeah. Uh, and it's going to hit us in a, in a, in a giga year or two. Yep. Uh, and that will drive gas towards the center of our galaxy and perhaps trigger one of these very luminous quasar events. Okay. Um, but the merger process is, is sort of extended in time. So at what point do the emissions start happening? Well, this is a controversial area because you get gas flowing into the centre uh, across a you know, quite a long time scale in the merger. Mm-hmm. But we expect the fastest gas flows, uh, the most massive gas flows, to occur when the nuclei of the galaxies merge together. And in fact, the two black holes in the separate galaxies merge together. We right. expect the maximum accretion to be around then. I see. But AGNs, uh, as a as a process, have a, have a lifetime. So, what sort of happens eventually? The energy output doesn't last forever, and then what happens next? Yeah, well, eventually, even if the gas is driven into the center, the gas will be used up. So, some of it will be accreted by the black hole, and that will cause a quasar. But some of it will also be used up in star formation. Uh, and then the other thing is that the quasar itself can actually affect the evolution because quasars are extremely powerful objects. And the jets you were talking about at the start can drive the gas out. And if that happens, if the quasar gets that powerful, it can drive the gas out, that will stop star formation and it will stop further accretion and it will swish off the quasar. Okay, and then what happens then? Does it just get less energetic? Do we have different kinds of AGN? I think, well, there are different kinds of AGN. Yeah, so, so you basically drive all the gas out and that stops the quasar because to get a quasar you need lots of accretion and you've driven all that gas out stops a lot of the star formation in the galaxy as well. But it's possible that some of the gas will fall back in and settle into a disk around the centre. But because that disk is stable, the the rate of inflow is much less, and that will give you a lower luminosity AGN. Okay. Uh, we call those AGN Seifert galaxies, and, and they're seen in quite a few nearby galaxies. Right. And at this point, once the merger is done, the host galaxy looks like an, like an ellipse. It's an elliptical galaxy. It's not spiral anymore in shape, is it? That's right. So basically this, this merger of two spiral galaxies, uh, in most cases, most scenarios for the merger, will lead to the formation of elliptical galaxy because the gas gets used up in star formation. The circular orbits of the gas in the disk is disrupted and, and you end up with something that's more or less spherical or elliptical in shape and you don't have a, a gas disk there. But concretely, the way you, you study these, and you, you, you're looking at samples of elliptical galaxies, and you're looking for like telltale traces of, yeah. of, of what happened 
during this this merger process and this gas inflow process. So could you could you describe what as a as an astronomer you're looking for in these galaxies to to sort of pick out these trigger events? Yeah, so mergers have very clear signs in terms of the structures of the galaxies. So if you merge two galaxies together, okay, you eventually form an elliptical galaxy, but it also creates a big mess of features. So you see tail, we call them tidal tail features, okay. that like tails that stick out of the centre of the galaxy. We see shell features, and we see all sorts of features like that that you wouldn't expect to see in an undisturbed galaxy. So if we see those features, it's a clear sign that a merge has happened. So the focus of what we do is that we look at objects that are like quasars, um, and we think they got have quasars in them, and we look at the whether there's evidence for these features in the galaxy around them. Because if we see those features, that's a strong sign that the quasar's been triggered in a merger. I see. The other clear sign of a merger, if, especially if it's been a merger of two spiral galaxies, lots of gas and dust, is that you'll get lots of star formation. So gas that get driven towards the nucleus, it will fuel the black hole, but also uh, because the gas density is high, it, it will um, lead to the formation of a burst of star formation. So the other thing we look for is whether we see this burst of star formation in the galaxies. Is that necessarily correlated to, to the triggering of a, of, a, of a quasar? Yeah, well, it depends on the type of merger. So if it's a major merger of two spiral galaxies, gas-rich, then we would expect to see this, this peak of star formation. If it's a smaller merger, so it's just um, a small galaxy falling into a ready-formed elliptical, then we wouldn't expect to see so much star formation. Okay. And actually, what we're finding is the latter, that although we believe that the quasars are triggered in mergers, they're not major gas-rich ones. It's smaller, more minor mergers that are triggering the activity. So there's a bit of a sweet spot where they have to be kind of the right, there has to be the right amount of gas and the right amount. Yeah, you need a certain right amount, amount of gas. Of gas. Yeah. Um, but you can get that, for example, by accreting one of the Magellanic clouds, for example, one of these smaller satellite galaxies. Accreting one of those onto an elliptical uh, and onto the centre would be enough to fuel the quasar activity. Once you've reached a certain threshold, does that automatically mean that an AGN will be triggered? No, because it depends on how the gas is moving. So we know that the mergers can deliver the gas quite close to the black hole, but we've really got to get down to the small scales. Okay. And it's controversial how that happens. However you get the gas close to the centre, whether you can, you know, how you get it down that last stretch really close to the black hole. And if the gas just forms a disk, like the disk of our galaxy, it will mm -hmm. just rotate around the black hole and it won't fall in. So it's not inevitable that if you get a lot of gas there in a merger, it's, ne it's necessarily going to fall in. Okay. And there's a lot of uncertainty about that. The theorists are trying to model that, but there's no real consensus about how the gas gets down the, the last stretch close to the black hole. Okay. Just out of curiosity, have we predicted what will happen to, uh, to the Milky Way and Andromeda when they merge? Do, do you think that'll turn into a quasar or lower level AGN or will nothing happen specifically? I think that probably if you have a major merger, then a quasar will be triggered at some stage in the major merger. Okay. Not, it's not on all the time. It's probably close to when the nuclei coalesce and the black holes merge together. You, sometime around there, you'll get a quasar, but not all the time. Okay. And I think it's 
highly likely that when Andromeda merges with the Milky Way, that we will have a quasar at some stage. I think that's probably the light, our, our likely future. Nice. Um, but that's five billion years away, so we don't have to worry too much about yeah. it. Yeah, these things happen on, on pretty mind-boggling timescales. Yeah. It's a, sort of 10 to the 8, 10 to the 9 years being bandied about, but uh, it's pretty mind-blowing to think. These these objects, I, I love quasars and, and AGMs because they're really the most powerful and things in the almost in the universe, and they yeah. just work on these these incomprehensible scales almost. Thanks a lot. That was extremely interesting, and I um, hope to see you sometime soon. <laughs> well, thank you. That's a pleasure. Thanks for that, Indy. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So what have you got for us this time, Fiona? Uh, today I have an odd and end about the farthest galaxy that was ever found, which was discovered recently um, by the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, so it's the most distant and ancient galaxy uh, that's been found so far. It's called 28GND5296, and they, they really have to start thinking of better names for these. It's not very catchy. It's not very catchy at all. Um, so they reckon it was formed within about 700 million years after the, the Big Bang, which makes it really, really, really old. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, obviously, when we look at something that far away, we're, we're seeing the light that came from it, you know, 13.1 billion years ago so we're, we're looking at it as it was then so that's why these ancient galaxies are really useful to astronomers because it gives them a glimpse of what conditions were like you know 700 million years after the big bang um so what's especially interesting about 28 gnd 5296 <laughs> <laughs> i just laugh every time i say that um is that it um seems to show a lot more star formation than the milky way so our milky way forms maybe two sun-like stars every year, whereas this new galaxy that they've discovered forms about 300 sun-like stars every year. And this is interesting because the previous record holder for the most distant galaxy uh, was found in the same region of the sky as 28 GND 5296. <laughs> I think it's 28 for short, for friends. Okay, 28 for short. <laughs> um, it was found in the same region of the galaxy and it also shows a really high level of star formation. Does that tell us that the star formation rate was generally higher in the early universe? Well, that's what they'd like to find out. I think at the moment they only have these two data points. Um, so they, they, they're saying it could either just be two outliers or it could be a general trend. So their plan, I think, is to try and see more of them, to try and to try and observe more really distant ancient galaxies and if see and see if that was uh, if that was the case back then. So anyway, it's it's either way whether it's two outliers or whether that's an actual thing which is happening. It's still very interesting. Just gets incredible. Cool. So what have you got, Indy? Um, slightly close to home for me. I'm going to talk about a possible new form of space tourism. So. Um, Obviously, we know things like Virgin Galactic and uh, and Spaceship One are trying to to bring space travel to the masses and get people out of Earth orbit. But a company now called Worldview Enterprises, for a slightly cheaper amount of money, well, it's still seventy five thousand US dollars, but they propose to put you on a balloon and uh, and float you up uh, nineteen miles or thirty kilometers up into the atmosphere using a specially designed balloon. So while it's not exactly considered outer space as that's sort of considered to start at about 62 miles uh, altitude or 100 kilometers it, you will get to the point where you can definitely see the blackness of space and the curvature of the earth 
And so in that sense, it's probably as close to space as most people will actually get. Um, I don't know, I don't know if you guys remember the parachute jump that Felix Baumgartner made oh, yeah, that we talked yeah, about. His jump was from 24 miles or 39 kilometers up. So um, if you watch some of the webcam footage of that, you get an idea. It's a little bit higher than what they're proposing, but you can definitely see sort of the blackness of space and the stars and, and the earth just sort of curved beneath you. So how will you breathe? So it's going to be in a, they're going to be inside a capsule. Oh, so it's not a typical uh, balloon, though. It, it, it's, it's, not a typical, no, it's not a typical balloon ride. Uh, <laughs> You're picturing like a wicker basket. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> going a bit higher than usual. Um, no, no, they're, gonna, they're actually going to um, be riding inside this capsule, which is uh, designed by a company which is also involved in some private Mars efforts. So they've already begun testing some components of the capsule, and they're going to try and demonstrate flight capabilities of the whole thing soon. So, I mean, the main advantage of this balloon thing is that it's two to three times cheaper than, than what, for example, Virgin Galactic are charging, which is a quarter of a million dollars for, for a brief choice. suborbital flight. It's also going to be longer uh, in this case. The, uh, the balloon ride will glide for about two hours at maximum altitude. So um, you, you really get your money's worth in terms mm-hmm. of time spent at the edge of space. I wonder how being up there for two hours would affect you physically. It could be two hours of you know, intense nausea. Yeah, I mean, I guess you you can't be too claustrophobic. Uh, you can't be too claustrophobic to begin with because mm. it's going to be a pretty small capsule. I mean, personally, I'd probably just spend two hours just like with my face pressed against the window, just like staring out at, at, um, at the earth. So I'd yeah. probably go for it if I had $75,000 lying around. Sounds good. So Kat, what, what's your odd and end this time? Well, do either of you guys watch Star Trek? I have done have in the done. past. <laughs> right, so you're familiar with warp drive? Oh yeah, definitely. That faster than light speed travel. Well, NASA engineers have begun investigating whether warp drive is actually possible. They're still in the early stages of their research at the moment. They're just what they're trying to do is just warp the trajectory of a single photon to see if um, this would be possible. And um, so this research is based on a theory that was proposed quite a few years ago now, in 1994, by a Mexican physicist called Miguel Alcubierre, who um, proposed a propulsion system that would contract space in front of the spacecraft and expand it behind the spacecraft. So it kind of pushes the spacecraft through space without um, contradicting Einstein. Sounds a bit like Futurama, you know, the engine works not by moving the spaceship, but moving space That's around the spaceship. exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Futurama was way out of its time. <laughs> um, so there are problems associated with the theory. In particular, it requires large amounts of exotic matter that sort of violate <laughs> quite a few physical laws. But there's, you know, there's people working on solutions to that. So there's a guy that's come up with... Um, with a particularly energy efficient kind of space uh, ship model that's in basically in the shape of a donut that helps solve some of the energy problems that are associated with the theory. Um, so it's still in its early stages, but I think it's really exciting and it's um, kind of ex- it hints at exciting prospects for the future of space travel. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, fast and light travel or, I guess finding the loophole that lets you do fast and light travel without violating the laws of physics would be the way to make space travel completely feasible to other star systems and, and other galaxies. Otherwise, the time involved is just way too long. You'd have to... Well, yeah, you know, absolutely. We're quite limited, I suppose, being, you know, finite human beings. We haven't got we haven't got years and years and years to go travelling through space. We need to 
speed up. I wonder <laughs> if they'll figure out how to do it before, you know, the end of the world. Because that's really, that's the, the race you're having, isn't it? You know, There's a figure out how there. to leave the yeah. earth before it implodes. <laughs> yeah, we've got strict deadlines. Yeah, so, work, you know, so. they'll have to work out how to do it for something bigger than a photon. Yeah, hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for now it's still something out of Star Trek, even if uh, even if NASA have decided to fund a little bit of it. But now we have someone with more knowledge of space than Spock himself. Here's Ian Morrison with The Night Sky. The Night Sky for November 2013. Well, after sunset, as it gets dark, that very lovely region of the sky containing Lyra with its bright star Vega, Cygnus with Deneb, and lower down... Aquila with Altair, those three stars forming the Summer Triangle, are setting down towards the west, but are still quite visible, actually, early on. Towards the southwest, there's a fairly blank area of sky, but it contains a very nice constellation, that of Pegasus, the winged horse, which is actually upside down, as seen from the Northern Hemisphere. There's a very nice little globular cluster, close to the star Enif, which is sort of the head of the of the head, and that's worth looking out for. If you start at the star Alpharats, which is the top left-hand star of the great square of Pegasus, move two stars around and up a little bit to the left, turn sharp right, move to another star, and then a bit beyond, you should see a fuzzy glow if the moon isn't too strong and it'll be new moon around the 3rd of, of November. That fuzzy glow is, in fact, the nearest giant galaxy to us, the Andromeda Galaxy, or M31. There's a little chart on the Night Sky website to show you how to find it. And again, around new moon, there's a good chance of, sort of backtracking a bit from Andromeda and finding M33 in the constellation Triangulum. So it's well worth having a look for those. As the evening wears on, Taurus, with its lovely clusters, the Hyades and the Pleiades cluster, are rising towards the southeast. High overhead, we have Cassiopeia, and the band of the Milky Way is running through Cassiopeia. Going down towards the left, we come to Auriga, and the bright star, rather yellowish in fact, of Capella. And perhaps you might spot, just above the eastern horizon, the stars Castor and Pollux, the heads of the twins, the heavenly twins, in Gemini. So a lot to look out for in what's a very nice month to observe the heavens. Well, what about the planets? We'll start with Jupiter. It rises now at about 9pm, and it transits, that's when it's due south, at 5am in the morning, so it's a sort of a morning object. But it'll then be about 60 degrees above the horizon in the south, shining at magnitude minus 2.4. It's lying in the constellation of Gemini, very close to the 3.5 magnitude star Wazat, which is Delta Geminorum. It stays pretty steady, actually, because on November the 7th, it begins its retrograde motion westwards across the sky. By the end of November, it rises at around 7pm and transit at 3am. Its magnitude will have increased to minus 2.6 and will have a diameter of nearly 45 arc seconds. Obviously with a small telescope you can observe the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. 
and at times be able to pick up the great red spot visible as an indentation in the south equatorial belt. This month we have a chance of seeing shadow transits of Io and Europa taking place on the nights of the 5th, 6th and 12th, 13th of November. Again, in the highlights on the Night Sky page, the details are given. Quite a nice thing to see, actually. The shadows show up beautifully, the sharp, circular, dark spots. And you can also, in fact, see two shadows and Io all together on the morning of the 6th. What about Saturn? Well, it passes behind the Sun on the 6th of November. So we're obviously not going to see it early on. But by around the 22nd, it might just be visible, not that high, above the eastern horizon in the pre-dawn sky. In fact, on the morning of the 22nd, it is very close to Mercury, only about 0.4 degrees separation between them. And in fact, we may be lucky, and just above the horizon, below the two, we might spot Comet Ison. Well, Mars has really begun its apparition. It rises at about 1.30 at the start of November, shining at magnitude plus 1.5, so it will be easily visible with binoculars in the pre-dawn sky. Its magnitude increases somewhat to plus 1.2 during the month, and its angular size increases from 4.9 to 5.6 arcseconds. And that's about the point where a small telescope will begin to see some features on the surface like the polar caps. So we could well say that Mars' apparition has really begun. It's currently at the beginning of November in Leo, and it moves into Virgo on the 25th. Mercury, in fact, passes through what is called inferior conjunction, that is, between the Earth and the Sun, on the 1st of November. So later in the month, it becomes visible again in the pre-dawn sky from about November the 9th, shining at magnitude plus 0.8. It brightens throughout the month and remains well visible until early December in what is its best morning apparition of 2013. Finally, Venus. Well, it reaches its greatest elongation from the Sun on the 1st of November, and that's usually when it's best seen. However, two things conspire against us. At this time, the ecliptic is at quite a shallow angle to the horizon. And even worse, Venus, which has a declination of minus 27, is very close to the furthest south in the sky it can get. In fact, on the 6th, it'll be further south than at any time since 1930. So the result of both those things is it will lie quite close to the horizon in the south-southwest, at about 9 degrees at the beginning of the month, perhaps 14 degrees to the end. So it will not really be as prominent as one might expect. Well, finally, what about some highlights? And we do have one really major one this month. But let's begin on November the 6th. Venus, as I've said, isn't going to be well seen, but it will lie below a thin crescent moon about 45 minutes after sunset on the 6th. So that's one nice chance of observing it. I've mentioned the shadow transits on November the 5th and 6th and 12th and 13th. Again, is a good month to observe the Andromeda galaxy. I've given the star chart to help. 
We do, on November the 16th, 17th, have a meteor shower, the Lynn, is usually quite a good one. The Earth is passing close to the tails of Comet Eugembri, left by Comet Temple Tuttle. Sadly, however, this year, the meteor shower occurs at the time of full moon, so its light will only really allow the brightest of the fast-moving meteors to be observed. So late evening on the 16th is probably the best time to observe it into the early hours of the 17th. It's not a bad month to observe and try and find Neptune, and I've given a star chart on the night sky page. It lies in Aquarius. The real highlight we hope this month is that Comet Ison should become visible in binoculars or a small telescope in the hour before dawn, probably best seen from around the 16th of the month onwards. And again, I've put a star chart on the night sky page to show you exactly where to look. And I might say, if you do have a tablet, an Android tablet or an iPhone, I think, you can get a very nice app called Sky Safari Plus. It's about £9. And that allows you to download the comet's orbital elements and it shows its positions over the next two months when we hope it could become spectacular. Its brightness is predicted to reach magnitude 3 to 4 during the month, so even visible to the naked eye if you know where to look. However, it must be said that recently it's not been brightening as much as predicted. So sadly, this means that Ison will not be the spectacular comet that many had hoped for. As it nears the sun, it's moving rapidly across the sky from Leo across Virgo and Libra into Scorpius during November. On the 17th and 18th, it'll be very close to Spica in Virgo. Around the 21st, it closes on Mercury and Saturn and will lie below them from the 24th onwards. But by this time, it will probably be lost in the sun's glare. It reappears after passing round the back of the sun very, very closely in December. Now, we believe it has a diameter of about three kilometres. It goes within the Roche limit of the sun, which could mean that the comet's nucleus will break up. How that affects its brightness in the days when we begin to see it following its passage past the sun, it's very, very hard to predict. But there are lots of websites telling you about Ison. Just have a look, search for them. One of them is called Waiting for Ison, and you'll get the latest details. And finally, I've briefly mentioned it before, on November the 26th before dawn, there's a very close conjunction of Mercury and Saturn. And it's just possible that you might see Comet Ison visible just above the horizon below them. So I hope we get some clear nights during the month and you get some nice observations. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's John Field with the Southern Night Sky. Kia ora and welcome to the November Jodcast from Catherine Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. After sunset, we see our winter constellations sliding down towards the horizon as our summer constellations rise in the east. Scorpius's tail will appear as a bent curve of stars into Mari at this time it is known as one of the four pillars on which Ranganui, the sky father, rests. The other three pillars are represented by Sirius, or Takarua, the belt of Orion, Toltoro, and the Pleiades, Matariki. 
These three pillars also mark the rising points of the sun, Tehra, at the solstices and the equinox. Tekeru marks the rising position of the sun at the time of the summer solstice. Matariki marks the rising point of the sun at the winter solstice, and Taltaro marks the equinox. The southern cross is now at its lowest in the sky, just above our southern horizon. Tamari is Tipanga, the anchor. It is sometimes seen as being the anchor of Tamari's waka, or canoe. In this waka, he sailed across the body of Ranganui, the sky father, placing the stars Nafetu on his body. These stars could then be used to navigate with, and their rising and setting marked the changing of the seasons. There are two other crosses that can be found along our southern horizon. These are the diamond and false crosses. Crux is the only official cross. The diamond, false and northern crosses are all asterisms, easily seen shapes made of the stars that form part of an official constellation. The lowest star in the diamond cross may look a bit fuzzy. Keen eyes may discern that it is a single bright star surrounded by a cluster of stars. This cluster is known as the Southern Pleiades, due to their resemblance to the Pleiades star cluster, and they are a lovely sight in binoculars. Sitting along the Milky Way, halfway between the false and diamond crosses, is a bright haze known as the Eta Carina Nebula. Binoculars and small telescopes reveal swirls of luminosity and many stars and star clusters. This nebula is four times larger and brighter than the famous Orion Nebula. It is estimated that this nebula is between 6 and 10,000 light years away. As a comparison, the Orion Nebula is only 1,300 light years away. To one side of the nebula is a bright orange star known as Eta Carina. This star is one of the most massive stars in our galaxy and perhaps one of the brightest too. Achena is at its highest above the Southern Cross. Between Achena and the Cross we find the two Magellanic Clouds, nearby galaxies of our Milky Way. Near to the smaller of the clouds can be found 47 Tucani, the second brightest globular cluster in the night sky. The constellation of Tucana, the Toucan, is supposed to represent the colourful bird from the tropics of South America. You will need a good imagination to make out a bird out of the faint stars that reside in this part of the sky. The brightest star in this constellation is a magnitude 2.8 yellow giant, about 200 light years away. Beta Tucana is a grouping of six stars sharing a common motion through space. November offers us the opportunity to observe a meteor shower that has been known to produce a spectacular sight. Known as the Leonid Meteor Shower, this annual event is associated with the trail of dust left behind by the short-period comet, Comet Temple Tuttle. This comet was independently discovered by two observers in 1865-1866. The comet has a 33-year orbit that comes very close to the Earth. This allows the Earth to pass through the dust and other debris that is lost from the comet. Observers notice that on average, every 33 years, the number of meteors observed during the shower marked showed a marked increase, and these are called meteor storms. These meteor storms are related to the individual trails within the main band of material being much denser. The 2013 shower is not expected to reach high levels, but even so, it's always possible that an unexpected peak could occur. The best time to observe the Leonids is about three hours before sunrise on the mornings of the 15th to 17th of November. Unfortunately, this coincides with the full moon, and this will severely hamper viewing conditions. Leo is one of the twelve traditional zodiac constellations and represents a lion. To seven observers, the lion hangs upside down in our sky, with a distinctive sickle shape marking the lion's chest and head. Orion and Taurus straddle their celestial equator and therefore visible in both hemispheres. The brightest star in Orion is called Rigel, from the Arabic word for foot. 
for someone observes Orion Port, Sir Bunkin's head and Betelgeuse's shoulder is down towards the northern horizon. Due to its position south of the equator, Rigel is always visible from the south pole, whilst Betelgeuse never rises. Rigel has a companion called Rigel B, first observed in 1831. This star shines at magnitude 6.7, but is overpowered by the glare of Rigel. Tamari Rigel is called Puanga, and its dawn rising in the lower north island held the changing of the Māori calendar year. Betelgeuse marks the shoulder of Orion and is a prominent red star in our night sky. This star is a red giant that is used at all its available hydrogen in its core and is fusing helium. This produces a more higher internal temperature that leads the surface of the star expanding and cooling to about 3,500 degrees Kelvin. The surface of Betelgeuse is cooler than the surface of our star and this gives it its distinctive red colour. Once its nuclear fuel is used up, this star may explode as a supernova, perhaps in the next million years or so, or may have already happened. Supernovae happen on average every hundred years or so in our galaxy. The only problem is that many of them may be on the other side of the galaxy or hidden by the plane of the Milky Way, and are therefore rarely seen. Taurus is one of the twelve zodiac constellations, the group of constellations through which the Sun, the Moon and the planets move. It represents the god Zeus in Greek mythology. From late November to mid-December, the Sun is opposite Taurus and can be found in the 30th and lesser well-known constellation of Ophiuchus. The Sun spends more time travelling through this constellation than it does through Scorpius. During November, we will hopefully see the comet Ison brighten to naked eye visibility. This comet will swing past the Sun on the 28th and 29th of November, and at this time, it will be just over 1 million kilometres from the surface of the Sun. The comet will probably put on its best display after perihelion, and by this time we'll be moving into the northern sky, so we may miss out on seeing this comet at its best. We wish you all clear skies from here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, John. Now on to the feedback. So it looks like you've got a postcard there, Fiona. So we have a postcard here sent to us from the States. Uh, on the front of it is a lovely cartoon of two children going off up into space in a spaceship uh, with the caption, Howdy. Uh, and on the back it says, Love the Jodcast. I ran into two alumni and my travels. Jod on, Jim S. And uh, I think Jim was referring to uh, the two astronauts who he labelled Jen and Megan. For our uh, older listeners, you'll know that Jen was well heavily involved with the Jodcast and so was Megan. So thanks for that little um, little reference there, Jim. As usual, I'll be tweeting a picture of this postcard, so check Twitter for the, the actual thing. So have you got anything for us, Indy? Yeah, we've got a lovely email from Paul Saxton, um, who says, Thanks so much for Jodcast. I'm grateful for all the effort that must go into producing a program every two weeks. I learn something new every time. Um, Paul writes, um, 6EQUJ5, where J equals Jodcast, a true wow signal standing out from the noise. For those of you who don't know, Paul is referring to um, a signal that was captured by SETI in, I think, 1977, um, which got famously dubbed the Wow signal because it was just a really strong burst of, um, uh, I think it was, I think it was radio um, that was pretty much unexplainable and still is unexplained at the time, and no one's ever seen anything like it again. So, thanks for that little astronomy reference, um, Paul, and thanks for your kind words. Thanks, Indy. We've also had a tweet from Adam, who is one of our main show editors, um, and he tweeted that. Um, he was walking the dog in the sunshine, listening to the Jodcast. A good start to Sunday. And we definitely agree with that. And as usual, thanks to all our new likers on Facebook and for all the retweets and follow Fridays on Twitter. 
And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Dr. Clive Tadhunter for the interview. The editors were Indy Leclerc, Sally Cooper, Francesca Lucini and Mark Perver. The producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time, Jordan. Jordan.